Good morning. Before we begin today, just want to say two things. First, great to see a great crowd out this morning for us to worship God in spirit and in truth and to be able to sing praises to him. I want to encourage you, if you can make it back tonight, to come back tonight as well. This didn't get in the bulletin on time, but tonight Neil's going to be preaching on the book of Revelation. Now, he's not going to explain everything to us about it, but... He will be dealing with some of the challenging things in the book, the 144,000, the thousand year reign and a few of the other things. And I know the book of Revelation is one we often have questions about. And so come back tonight and study together. And the second thing is, if you're a man in this congregation or even just visiting, we want to encourage you again. There's still time for you to sign up for the men's retreat that will be taking place January 27th and 28th. Good friend of ours, Matt Wallen, is coming to speak to us. He's bringing a group down and it will be an uplifting time. We'll be encouraged. And there's no doubt you'll be glad you came. If you know somebody who you would like to invite, they don't have to be a member here or a member of any church. They can come and be among us and it'll be a great time. Let me introduce you to a few people this morning. This is Jonathan. Jonathan's a 28-year-old accountant. And after a bout with unbelief, he started to study the Bible again for himself for the very first time. He grew up in a home where he was taught the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. And after doubting that, he's come to believe the Bible is God's Word. Jesus is the Son of God. And after he's read through the New Testament, he's realizing now that if you're going to be pleasing to God, you have to assemble with a group of people and you're going to have to attend a church. He just doesn't know right now, based on what he's studied and what he sees all around him, what church he should attend. Then there's Michael and Sarah. They've been married for eight years. They have two children. Neither one of them is religious. In fact, if it was up to them, they would spend many of their Sunday mornings binge watching their favorite TV show or maybe enjoying a beach day as a family. But they've got two children. And so they've just reasoned to themselves it would be good for the children to grow up in a sort of spiritual environment, learning morals and principles and that sort of thing. And so now they've got a dilemma. They need to find a place that will both be spiritually edifying for the children, but also a place that won't put them to sleep as the spiritual babysitters. And so they're at a crossroads, a dilemma. Where should they attend church? What should they be looking for? They want the children to learn and they also want to at least be entertained. Meet Cecil. He's 78 years old. He's been going to church his entire life. Good enough for Cecil. His wife always picked where they assembled. They've been married for 50 years. They recently moved to a new neighborhood and sad to say Cecil's wife has recently passed. For the first time in his life, he has to decide for himself where he should attend worship. But lucky enough for Cecil, there are two churches directly across the street from his house. The only thing Cecil has to figure out is what church should he attend and for what reason. Chanel's a junior in college. Her whole life she was taught to judge churches based on scripture, and that's what she's done. She's off away from home. She's been attending this congregation, and it's similar to home, but there are some differences. This congregation doesn't have nearly as many people as her, as her age group, and her age group and all of her friends go to the local denomination. seems to be thriving and far more exciting than what she's doing. She's struggling with herself. She knows what the Bible says and what she believes that she should do, but she's tired of being the odd person out, the oddball, ostracized and off to herself. She's struggling between what she knows and what she feels. She's decided for the time being to just sort of leave things alone. She's going to think about it as she's on a break away from school and maybe make a decision afterwards. And here's the last man. His name is Brandon. Brandon grew up in churches of Christ, attending the church of Christ all of his life. He was taught and he had heard preach. You know, the Bible says there's one church and you can read about it in the New Testament and everybody in the world should just be a member of that one church. As Brandon's grown up, he says he really doesn't believe that anymore. 
So far as he's concerned, everybody's getting it right. I mean, people have their differences and there may be some nuances and maybe we're getting it more right than they're getting it. But in the end, there's really no difference altogether. He likes to refer to himself as a church of Christer, so to speak. I mean, they're getting some things right and we're getting some. And he's been in these Bible classes where he believes these spiritual elites sometimes argue over incidental details that in the end, they really don't matter. Nobody can really be sure. Brandon wants to talk to his preacher about some of the things he's been struggling with, but he's afraid of how he'll be received. It seems like we looked at five different scenarios, but we really haven't. In the end, the heart of the issue that all five of these individuals are wrestling with is what should they be looking for in a church? What should they be expecting? What should be God's expectations for them? And how do they make decisions? If you have your Bible, turn it to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. And at least in the light burgundy ones, it's on page 944. When Luke wrote the book of Acts, he wrote to a man by the name of Theophilus. And he says, I wrote to him about all the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And he wrote to him about the kingdom of God. And as he wrote to Theophilus about the kingdom of God, he records in Acts chapter 2 the first gospel sermon that was preached after Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the sermon that Peter preaches is remarkable. Thousands of people come to Jesus Christ in response to this sermon and scores more have become Christians as a response to this sermon ever since that time period. But more than just a great sermon with the great initial response, it gives us, if we look into the heart of this text, what everybody in the world should be looking for in a church, regardless of your religious background, regardless of what you've heard all your life. Acts chapter two says, now here's God's idea for a sermon. Chase read for us a moment ago, Matthew 16 and John 17. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church and I want everybody to be one in that church. And how do we decide? How do we figure it out? What I want to encourage us to do this morning is just simply to let the text speak for itself. If you have your Bible, I want to ask you this morning, just stick with us as we go down from Acts 2 and verse 36 down through verse 47. I'm going to ask you to do something that's very difficult. But I want you to the best of your ability to put out everything you've ever heard about church. I know it's difficult, nearly impossible, but put away your preconceived notions prejudicial ideas and the thoughts that you may have about what to look for when you think about New Testament Christianity and what we just let God tell us himself because God knows what he wants and God always gets it right. We're going to reference a lot of other passages. Our the main text is going to be Acts 2:36 through 47. And if there's anything we say, you say, "Well, you said this kind of fast and somebody says you say everything kind of fast." But anyway, <laughs> if there's any question about any verse we reference or anything we say, we really don't mean to be unkind. We don't want to misrepresent what we're saying. I would love for you to talk to me, one of the elders, Neil or David, but God wants us to get this right. It's the conclusion of Peter's sermon. Look at verse 36. Let therefore all the house of Israel know for certain God has made this same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and your children, all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then those that received his words were baptized. And the same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Great fear came on every soul and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. All that believed were together. They had all things in common. No man said anything that he owned was his own. They sold their possessions and goods and departed them to each individual as they had need. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple 
and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to the church day by day those that were being saved. What should we be looking for in a church? Let's begin together. Number one, Peter says, look for a church with Christ centered preaching. Acts chapter 2 and verse 13 begins with the 12 standing up speaking in these other languages. They've been given the Holy Spirit of God in miraculous fashion, and they're communicating in these languages that other people can understand, but which they hadn't previously studied. Verse 13 says, they said the apostles are drunk with new wine. Peter's response in 14 and 15, we're not drunk with new wine. It's only the third hour of the day. And then he starts into his sermon and his defense. From verse 16 down through verse 21, Peter dips back into the Old Testament and he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And he says, this is what Joel already prophesied, that the spirit would descend on people of God and sons and daughters would prophesy. Old men would see visions and young men would dream dreams. Peter says we're not drunk. We're divinely inspired. Peter goes on to talk about the fact that they knew Jesus had been crucified and they were a part of it. They saw the miracles and signs, verse 22 down through verse 24. Verse 25 through 31, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, verse 8 and verse 11. And he says that was never really about David. It was about Jesus who would rise from the dead and he sits on his throne. Verse 34 and verse 35, just like David said he would in Psalm 110 and verse 1. And then the punchline to the sermon. It's not verse 38. It's verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made this same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Somebody says, what should I be looking for in a church? Look for Christ centered preaching. Peter's whole sermon is about Jesus Christ. In fact, 50 percent of Peter's words in this sermon are direct quotations from the Old Testament. As far as Peter's concerned, no scripture, no sermon. Peter quotes extensively from the Old Testament and draws the connections back and forth and to say, this is what the Bible has been telling you all the time. This is the Jesus that you've crucified. God raised him from the dead. And we should expect the same thing. When we think about where we're going to assemble and about assembling with the people of God for worship, church is not entertainment. In the end, it's an encounter with God through worship. And we should look for Christ centered preaching. God has made this same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. What Peter does is what Paul told Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Preach the word. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. That means say exactly what God has said about whatever subject it is. How many people go into buildings week after week and they hear sermons? And they go to work on Monday and somebody says, well, what did you do yesterday? We went to worship. Somebody says, well, that's great. What did you learn about? Oh, it was a great time. What did you learn about? I don't know, but it was a great time. Maybe they heard a funny illustration about somebody's dogs or somebody's grandkids or really this big, interesting story about something that's in current events or in the news. But there was no Christ preached, no Christ exalted. We should be considering when it comes to where we're going to worship. Is Christ upheld as central? You know, Jesus, as he's depicted in the Bible, he says the Old Testament's about me. Luke 24 and verse 44. The New Testament is clearly about him. But if we find ourselves assembling in a place where Jesus is simply the garnish of the sermon, maybe just mentioned at the closing, at the very end, we've missed it and we're in the wrong place. In 1984, Richard Werman began the company we know as TED, T-E-D, Technology, Entertainment and Design. It now is famous for what's been called its TED Talks in 2018 and has been this way ever since. It's $10,000 per attendee to attend one of these TED conferences. The tagline for TED is ideas worth sharing. 
And they bring different people in. You can see some of them on the screen. Pope Francis, Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, Bono and others. And they get in these TED conferences. And what they do in 18 minutes is share some thought, some nugget, some idea that people are dying to hear. And it's become widely popular and people love it. But what I want to say to us in 2023 is that preaching is not a TED talk. It's not the preacher's responsibility to whip up 30 minutes of enthusiasm for us. It's his responsibility to uphold the Christ. John 12 and verse 21, what the Greek said to Philip is what every attendee to an assembly should demand of the person that stands behind a pulpit or a lectern in a classroom. Sirs, we would see Jesus. Tell us what the Bible says. That's what you find. What Peter does in Acts chapter two is not an anomaly. Would you march with me through the book of Acts and just notice that this happens repeatedly? Acts chapter five and verse 42. It says that they continue daily in the temple and they cease not to preach and to teach Jesus Christ. Acts 5:42. Acts chapter six and verse seven. The word of God multiplied and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Acts chapter seven, verse two down through verse 53. Stephen preaches and gives a survey of Old Testament history and points back to Jesus Christ. Acts chapter eight and verse four. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching. Guess what? The word. Acts eight thirty five. Philip one on one with the Ethiopian nobleman. Acts eight thirty five says he started at the very same scripture and he preached to him. Jesus Cornelius got his whole household together. Acts 10 and verse thirty three to hear the word of God. Don't you see it? In the first century, when people gathered together in buildings like this one, what they wanted to hear when they got in front of the apostles was give us the Bible. And we should desire the same thing today. What should I be looking for in a church? We should be saying, what does the Bible say? Would you explain to me that passage and how it ultimately points back to Jesus Christ? Because that's who Christianity is all about. And if we've settled for anything less, we've settled for a counterfeit. The International Business Times ran an article recently about why people love Chick-fil-A. And they had a lot of reasons. But can you guess which one was number one? It wasn't their service and that they end every order with our pleasure. It wasn't the addicting fruit punch or the cool ice cream cones, the vanilla kind. No, the number one reason in the International Business Times of why people love Chick-fil-A was pretty simple. They love chicken sandwiches and waffle fries. Chick-fil-A is the chicken place and they give out chicken and that's what people want. If a building outside of the building says this is the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, it's really not confusing at all. When people enter into that assembly, you know what people should hear. You know what people want to hear? Jesus Christ. Paul said we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves is your servants for Jesus' sake. Second Corinthians four and verse five. Give us Christ. That's what Peter did in Acts chapter two. What should someone look for in a church? The first thing, the first thing to look for. Do they preach the truth about Jesus? Now, here's number two. Stay in Acts chapter two. The biblical plan of salvation. Peter preaches in their cut to the heart in verse 37. And we're not surprised, are we? That's what the word of God does. Hebrews four and verse 12. It cuts coming and it cuts going. It divides the soul from the spirit. And that's what happens to these folks in verse 37. And then in verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And do you know what happened in verse 41? Those that gladly received his words, they were baptized. And that same day there was added unto them about 3000 souls. What should I be looking for in a church? Here's the second one. The biblical plan of salvation. What these folks ask in verse 37 is the most important question in the world. And the response to it is the most important answer in the world. When somebody says, what must I do to be saved? If they don't give a biblical answer, you're in the wrong place. 
Several times throughout the book of Acts, this question is posed and a similar response is given. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, when Saul of Tarsus encounters Jesus, Jesus Christ and his exalted position, he says, what will you have me to do? Jesus says, go into the city and it'll be told you what you must do. Acts 9 and verse 18, Saul of Tarsus is met by Ananias and he baptized it baptizes him right away. Acts 22 and verse 16 says Saul did it to have his sins forgiven. But even on Gentile soil and Gentile territory, the Philippian correctional officer, the jailer, he meets Saul and Silas and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your house will be saved. They preach him the word. He washes their stripes straightway. They baptize him. Acts 16, 30 through 34. What must I do to be saved? Somebody says, what should I be looking for in a church? The church that gives the biblical answer to that question. If there was ever a time to tell people in response to this question, what must I do to be saved? Well, just bow your head and repeat after me. That's exactly what we should hope to find in verse 38. If there was ever a time to say anything other than what Peter said, we should expect to find it in Acts chapter 2. But that's not at all what we find. We find Peter saying, repent, turn away from your sins and be baptized. Now, how does someone become a Christian? is one of the primary things that we should be considering when we think about what should I look for in a church? And the answer to that, the New Testament makes this simple. A person has to believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. John 8 and verse 24. Jesus says, if you don't believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. And where I'm headed, you can't come. A person has to turn away from their sins. That's called repentance. Acts 17 and verse 30 says all men everywhere must repent. A person has to confess with the mouth what they believe in their heart. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and then be baptized to have their sins washed away, Acts 2 and verse 38. If a person hasn't done that, no matter how nice, how kind, how righteous, they're not a Christian according to the Bible. And if they go to a place and they say, well, what must I do to be saved? And somebody were to say, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe in your heart. That couldn't be right because that's not what Peter said. James 2 and verse 24, faith without works is dead. Or if you were to go to a place and they said, listen, what must I do to be saved? Well, just say this prayer. That couldn't be right. Because 1 Peter 3 and verse 12 says sinners aren't on speaking terms with God. Not in that way. His eyes are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. If you say, what must I do to be saved? And somebody says, if you work really hard, if you do all of the work, that couldn't be right. Because we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of work so that nobody should boast. If somebody says, wait for the Holy Spirit, notice Peter says the Holy Spirit is given in response to a person's obedience to the gospel, not as a prerequisite for it. What must I do to be saved? What should I look for in a church? The congregation of people that answers that question with the biblical response. It matters because you don't want to be lost. You don't want to miss it on this question. And so what we say about this says everything about who we are. You know, Jesus is going to do the judging. John 12 and verse 48 but he commissioned the apostles to take the word into the world. And it's interesting that every time somebody is asked this question, they're given the very same answer. And, you know, time hasn't changed this. When you think about what it takes to be a Christian, to be a part of God's family, we should expect the same biblical answer. Sometimes myths are propagated. They just start up small and then over time, people, they just accept them and they believe them. They don't even question them. Maybe you've heard some of these carrots will improve your eyesight. Well, the problem with that is while that's been shown in some studies, they don't really know how many carrots and how much it improves your eyesight. So keep your glasses. Or maybe this one. You can't swim just after you've eaten. You get a cramp. No, that's parents way of getting you to sit down so that you don't go out there and get in the pool. But there's no study to show that you'll get a cramp right after you right after you've eaten. If you go swimming, 
There are other myths like it takes seven years for you to digest bubblegum. The Mayo Clinic says our bodies really never digested. It's just a myth. Or what about this one? Breakfast is the most what? Important meal of the day. What if that's not true? What if that was a myth propagated by two Seventh-day Adventists, one by the name of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg in the 19th century, who wanted to get his cereal company off the ground. And so he said, you know what we'll do? We'll tell folks breakfast is the most important meal of the day and that they should eat it together as a family. We'll make it light and easy to consume. And that's exactly what he's done. Breakfast is important, but it may not be any more important than the others. But no myth is more detrimental to the human soul than myths about how you become a Christian. All you have to do is believe, hey, you don't have to be baptized. In fact, it doesn't matter why you got baptized. So long as you go down in the water or do something like that, don't get hung up on the details. Jesus says, unless a person's born of the water and the spirit, they can't see the kingdom of God, John 3 and verse 5. He that believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16 and verse 16. Baptism also now saves you, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Testament is telling us this is how you respond to God and baptism has no effect whatsoever. Divorce from a heart of penitence and faith in Jesus Christ. But all of the faith and penitence in the world divorced from the culminating act of baptism won't save one human soul. They come to Peter and they say, what shall we do? And Peter tells them and every faithful group of God's people has been echoing Peter's words down through time. And if we're looking for something in the church or we're looking for a church with which to assemble, look for one that gives the right answer to the biblical plan of salvation. Don't leave this to chance. What if you were in a dangerous neighborhood and your phone was dying and you were trying to find your way back home and you stopped a stranger and you said, how do I get back home? And they say, I'm lost, too. I don't really know where I'm going. But it feels like if you go 10 miles south and make two rights, you may end up in your hometown. You say that doesn't sound like good advice. And so you go to the nearest gas station and you meet the cashier and they say, well, I've never heard of your hometown. But if you turn out of this out of this gas station and you go 10 miles east and make two lefts, I believe you'll end up in the right place. And just about that time, a stranger comes in and he hears you speaking and he says, I've just come from your hometown. And he starts naming landmarkers and street names. And he says, I know exactly how you get home. And he writes it down and he says, now, here's the way that you should go. Whose directions would you take? But you see, you are in a dangerous neighborhood and so am I. The dangerous neighborhood of sin that ultimately culminates in eternal death. And people can give you all the advice and they can say, well, I think God would do this and I think God would do that. Jesus comes from heaven to earth and he says, I just came back from where you hope to go. I don't just know the way I am the way. John 14 and verse six. And you'll never know life and peace with God apart from me. Acts four and verse 12. He says, let me take you by the hand, by faith, and I'll show you the way home. And we open up the New Testament and we shouldn't argue with him. We shouldn't wrestle with it. We should embrace it and accept it. What to look for in a church, one that teaches the biblical plan of salvation. But here's number three, one that continues in the apostles doctrine. Acts chapter two and verse 42 comes after 41 because baptism is not the end. It's the beginning. Acts two and verse 42 says they continued steadfastly or devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the prayers. They kept with it. What should you look for in a church? Look for one where Christ centered preaching takes place. He's the focus. Number two, the biblical plan of salvation is regularly espoused. It's clear. Everybody in the group became a Christian the same way, and it echoes what you find in the New Testament. But here's number three. Do they continue in the apostles' doctrine? Do you know that it's possible to preach Christ, to even say the right thing about what a person has to do in order to be saved, and yet not continue in the apostles' doctrine, to go off and to drift off and to not be the people that God wants us to be? But notice the areas that are mentioned in verse 42. The apostles doctrine, that's the teaching. 
2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says, God's word is the inspired and God-breathed message of God, and it equips us for every good work. The fellowship, this is their joint participation. This word fellowship is used in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 4 and in 1 John 1 and verse 3. It probably has something in this context to do with them sharing their goods together, but they're locked together in the fellowship. The breaking of bread, a reference to the Lord's Supper, Acts 20 and verse 7. And then, of course, the prayers. What should I look for in a church? One that continues in the apostles doctrine. That after you become a Christian, we don't make it up as we go along. We just do exactly what we find in the New Testament. And we want to please God. Listen, every church in the world, it doesn't matter if they're Catholic, doesn't matter if it says Church of Christ on the sign, doesn't matter if it says Methodist or Baptist. Every single church in the world has to make decisions. Some of the decisions are trivial. What color is the carpet going to be? How are we going to organize our building? What kind of seats or pews are we going to sit in? But then there are other decisions that have to be made. How are we going to finance this work? Are we going to just do what the New Testament says, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, and have free will offerings given by the members on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2? Are we going to impose a percentage and bind maybe tithing or some other man-made mechanism? Or what about the Lord's Supper? Are we going to take the Lord's Supper? Maybe once a quarter or once a month. Or are we going to do it every first day of the week like the first Christians did, Acts 20 and verse 7. And right here in Acts 2.42, this continued steadfastly and devotedly. It's the regular intaking in of something. And that's what they did in the Lord's Supper. It couldn't have been quarterly or yearly because in Acts 2.42, the church isn't quarterly or a year old yet. Somebody says we can't do that with the Lord's Supper. It'll lose its significance. It'll lose its purpose. You know, I wasn't raised in churches of Christ. I didn't obey the gospel until I was 20 years old, and I've been to all types of different churches. And they never say that about giving. Nobody ever says, well, we can't do the giving every week, because if we do, it'll lose its significance. They take up a collection every first day of the week, and do you know why they do it? It's because that's exactly what the New Testament says. What are we going to do about our organization? Are we going to have a plurality of men serve as elders, just like the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7? Or will we have a one man pastor system? Because that's what works for us. Listen, every church in the world has to make decisions and every church in the world makes those decisions based on one of two options. Either we make them and they make them based on the word of God or the opinions of men. Everybody in the world does this. That's the only option you have. Either you say we're going to do what we do because we can put our finger on a passage and say this is what God says or we're going to put our finger on a passage and do it our way. But John says whoever goes onward and doesn't abide in the doctrine of Christ, he doesn't have God. But if you abide in the doctrine, you have the father and the son. Second John nine and verse 10. We struggle here because we are living in a society right now where the most important thing about you, you're told, are your feelings. Somebody wins a football game. The first thing the interviewer is going to ask him, just watch the playoffs today. The first thing they're going to say is, how do you feel? Somebody wins an award for something. Doesn't matter how much hard work. They don't want to know strategy. They don't want to know the plans. The first thing they'll say is, how do you feel? And then we bring that idea into our Christianity. And somebody says, well, I know what the New Testament says, but the first thing I want to know is, how do I feel in the New Testament saying, oh, no. While feelings aren't excluded, the most important thing in the world is what is God by faith revealed? That's what matters more than how we feel. Our feelings will catch up to our knowledge in time. But God says, before you tell me how you feel, do what I've revealed to you because I know what you need. I know what's best. Continue in the apostles doctrine. Stick with it and please God. Dave Clark, the former VP for Amazon, once said about their company, in time, we hope to give anybody everything that they want. And, you know, that's a great slogan for a company like Amazon, but it's a terrible slogan for a church. 
We can't say to somebody, well, we're just going to give you whatever you want. We should be saying we're going to give you whatever God says we should with all the love and kindness and gentleness of Jesus that we can muster. But you don't have enough carnivals, water slides, donuts and Dr. Pepper to keep in a group of people that you've snuck into Christianity. Just because, well, we didn't want to offend anybody. And, well, we just want to have two types of services, one contemporary and one traditional. We want to make everybody happy. What about scriptural? What if we just do what the New Testament says? What should I look for in a church? One that continues in the apostles doctrine. Now, quickly, here's number four. What should we look for in a church? A church that loves one another. If you keep going in Acts chapter two, it doesn't stop in 42. They're together. The apostles do miracles in 43. All that believed were together. They had everything in common. They sold their possessions and their goods and they distributed them to other individuals. They took Jesus seriously. And Luke six and verse thirty eight, where he says, you're to give as it's been given to you. Shake down and pressing together, running over. Men will give into your bosoms. That's what they do. Not because it was mandated that they sell all their property, but Christians had become Christians. At least the Jews had on this occasion as they came for the Feast of Pentecost. They didn't expect to. Once they obeyed the gospel, they're here. They need supplies. These individuals sell their property and their goods to give it to them. A similar thing happens in Acts chapter four, verse 32 through 35. Christians are there and they're in need. And the Bible says all that believe were together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and their goods. And eventually Barnabas sells this piece of property and he gives all of the proceeds to the apostles. What should you look for in a church? Yes. Christ centered preaching. It's a must. The biblical plan of salvation. Absolutely. Look for a church that continues steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and don't compromise that. But then number four, a church where the members love one another. C.S. Lewis said a man must not always be defending the truth. He must also find time to feast on it. And here's where this comes into play. It's not enough to say, well, we stand for the right things and our church is healthy because we have sound doctrine. Listen, just because you don't have a disease doesn't mean you're healthy. We're so worried sometimes about false doctrine. But don't forget that you cannot espouse things that are false and still be unhealthy because you've got to have love. And so Jesus would say in John 13, 34 and 35, by this will all men know you're my disciples. If you have loved one toward another, let brotherly love continue. Hebrews 13 and verse one, love one another fervently with a pure heart. First Peter 1, 22 and 23. And that's exactly what you see the early church doing. When you start thinking about, well, I wonder where I'm going to assemble. Beware of settling for a church that just dots the right I's and crosses the right T's. You need more. When life breaks you down and it will. You need a church that's going to come alongside you and weep at those who weep. In the happiest moments of your life, it'll be great if you can rejoice, but you need other people to come alongside you and shout for joy as well. Romans 12, 15. You need to be in a group of, among a group of people that are going to make it difficult for you to do the wrong thing because they're always encouraging you to do what's right. Hebrews 10 and verse 24. Provoke one another to love and good works. Stir each other up in that direction. You need to be among a group of people that are going to sing the truths of God to your heart. Ephesians 519, as you encourage and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, just like the New Testament says that we should look for a church that is bubbling forth and overflowing in love. Because Jesus says, among other things, this is the identity badge of my disciples. And this is how you know you found them, because their love is contagious. And they love one another. Would you look at the text and notice in verse 47, it called on with the outsiders praising God and having favor with all the people. We read the book of Acts and we talk about all the persecution that they faced and they did. But initially they had the interest of even the outsiders because they had never seen love like this. One fourth century church historian said you could say it this way. Behold the Romans, how they hate one another and behold the Christians, how they love one another. What church should I be a member of? 
the church where they love one another. Now, here's the fifth and final one. Look for a church that God adds the members to. Peter preaches the sermon. The apostles do signs, but God adds the people. Paul planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. First Corinthians three and verse six. Luke tells us here in Acts chapter two and verse 47. After these people respond and they're baptized, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day or adding to the church. Those that were being saved It's God's church. It just makes sense that he would determine who would be in it. Run as far away from a church as you can. If you say, well, what do I got to do to be here? And they say, well, we're going to take a vote. Or after you do some classes and we'll think about it, if anybody ever says that, you should run as far away from that as you can. Run away for dear life, for eternal life, because the only person who gets to decide who's in the family of God is God himself. That's not to say that elders don't make decisions about people placing membership. That's a different manner altogether. But what Luke says here is that when these individuals obeyed the gospel simultaneously with becoming Christians, God says, I've saved you and you don't have to go church shopping. I'll just put you in my family altogether. Same time. First Corinthians 12 and verse 18, Paul says, God set every member in the church as it pleased him. This is exactly what God wanted. And it's exactly what you see. You read the New Testament and you've got people like Paul and Peter, John and Claudia and Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila. And as mightily as they worked in the kingdom of God in the first century, not one time is the church ever called after any of their names. It's never their church. It's always the household of God. First Timothy three fifteen, the one body, Ephesians four and verse four, the churches of Christ, Romans 16 and verse 16, the church of God. First Corinthians one and verse two, these possessive terms that say the church belongs to God. And that's what we mean away with the terminology that says we're church of Christers as if there's different types of formulas and different types of flavors of Christianity, of which we're just one among the many. When we say we're a church of Christ, I hope what we mean to communicate is this. We're the people that belong to Jesus Christ and nothing more, nothing less. Just a Christian. That's all we want to be. Obey the gospel, become a Christian and be in God's family, not a member of a denomination, not a better denomination than the denominations, pre-denominational Christianity. Just like if you were to walk up to one of these folks in Acts chapter two and say to them, of what church are you a member? They don't know how to answer that question, because if you look denominationalism in his face, you can put all the makeup on her that you want, all the high heels on her that you aspire. But she's too young to be his bride. Because she's not as old as the New Testament church. And that's the church Jesus died to purchase. And when you become a Christian, just a Christian, God's going to put you in his family. You don't have to decide. He'll do it at the very same time and you'll be saved. It doesn't matter if a person's in college, if they're a widow. Doesn't matter if they're married, if they're college age. What God desires for everybody in the world is the very same thing. To be in his family, his church, of which there's only one. Don't think about a building. Think about the assembly of the people throughout the world and throughout the history of time that have done exactly what you find in Acts chapter two. And they became Christians and they became a part of God's family and they assembled with people doing the very same thing. Somebody says, Hiram, are you trying to say to me that there's only one church and all other churches aren't getting it right? And can we really be sure about that? That sounds a little dogmatic to me. Is that really what you're trying to communicate? And that's exactly what Luke means to communicate and we mean to echo. There is one family of God. And rather than argue against it or push back or fight against it, the best thing we can do for ourselves and people that we love is do exactly what Isaiah saw 700 years before Jesus and invite everybody from every nation, tribe and tongue to press into that family and into that kingdom. 
and surround ourselves around the Lord's table and be in the one family that he died to purchase. What to look for in a church? Look for Jesus. And when you found him, you found everything. It's our custom to sing a song of invitation at the end of a lesson. And it just may be that you want to become a Christian just the way the New Testament says. You look at your conversion and what you did is not what they did in Acts chapter 2. Or maybe you've thought about this and studied for some time and you're ready to do it. What do you need to do? We won't ask any more, any less of you than what they did in the first century. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Lord will wash away all of your sins and add you to his family. If you're already in the family of God and you're struggling just like they did in the first century. We don't just want to teach you the truth. We want to love on one another and pray for one another. So if we can help you, we would love to do that. If there's any questions about anything that has been said this morning, anything you need clarification on, anything you would like to talk with us about, we don't believe we know everything. We're really not interested in who's right, but more so what's right. And we want to sit down and study with you. It would be our honor to do that so that we can do to the best of our ability what the Lord would have every one of us to do. And that's live in accordance with his word. If this is your invitation, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.